The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of on-demand audio for the whole family. Your kids or grandkids can listen to the popular radio drama Adventures in Odyssey and two-minute Bible stories called Quick Sticks whenever it suits you. Whether you're in the car for a few minutes or for a longer trip, these two programs will keep the kids entertained. New episodes are added every weekday in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We're turning our attention today to two largely untold or misunderstood stories. The first is the story of the phenomenal growth of Protestant Christianity in the developing world since the 1960s. The second is the story of the rising Christian persecution that's reached dizzying heights, where more than 300 million Christians are under severe persecution. And today we will find out why. Our special guest today says whenever the church grows in grace and mobilizes for mission, it inevitably attracts opposition and persecution. It's a conversation today about our changing world that's created the scenario where hundreds of millions of Christians live as vulnerable, countercultural religious minorities amidst increasingly radicalised Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, animist and atheist majorities. Elizabeth Kendall is our special guest today. She's a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church, a former principal researcher for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission. Elizabeth is the author of two books. We'll talk about these later too. Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, And after Saturday comes Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. Elizabeth Kendall, it is always a pleasure. A special welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's always a pleasure to be uh, chatting with you. Elizabeth, our changing world, uh, we can watch the news headlines uh, every night at six or follow those things on social media. It doesn't seem like things are getting any better or any easier. No, it definitely isn't. And that's partly because of changes in the West, actually. So while the West has long been a a voice for religious freedom and one of the champions of religious freedom, increasingly uh, the West is, uh, you know, Christianity is uh, ceasing to have its influence, particularly amongst elites and political, those with political power and influence in the West. So the the religious freedom is no longer high on the agenda like it used to be. So whereas in the past, uh, regimes that have persecuted Christians have moderated their behaviour because of pressure from the West and because the West had a lot of especially economic clout to uh, (laughs) encourage them to do that, uh, those days are over. And uh, what I routinely say is like things have changed. The gloves are off. And what we're seeing today is that people who want to persecute Christians, regimes and and people who want to kill and get rid of Christians, 
they basically have the freedom to do so, such that in persecution with impunity is becoming the order of the day. You talk about a multipolar world, and as you're describing there, the West has had a fairly significant dominance, and with the dominance comes that Western-founded Christian morality. And so you've got a multipolar world now, and so if you're polarising, I imagine that means, as you're suggesting, everyone's starting to fight back and all of these other religious alternatives or those sorts of ideological foundations are pushing back against the Western side of strength, and that includes our morality. Yes, but it's not even just that, Neil. It's not even just that... We're in a multipolar world, and now if the, if you know if you get under sanctions from America, well, who cares? You know, we'll go to China instead. You know that sort of thing that that multipolar world where it doesn't really matter if America sanctions you, you can just go to China or Saudi Arabia or someone else to get what you want. The the other side of that coin is that the West itself is not defending religious liberty like it used to. So, you know, if you go right back, you know, a couple of hundred years, or I haven't got the date in front of me now, but there was a time when the Japanese were uh, appalling persecutors of Christianity. Christianity was banned. Uh, Anyone who's watched Martin Scorsese's film, Silence, uh, that's based on the the true story of um, the, the hidden Christians. So the little Christian remnant that wasn't wiped out by Japanese persecution going underground uh, and, you know, all the, the, the Catholic priests who worked amongst them down in Nagasaki, uh, they were all killed uh, down and, um, it, and, and it was just a terrible situation. But that ended because America arrived uh, on the shores of Japan and said, we will trade with you, but only if, only if you, you end this ban on Christianity. And they, they meant it. And so Japan, even though it's still one of the most difficult places to witness in and to get a breakthrough in, the, the breakthrough hasn't happened yet. But they did lift their ban on Christianity because of Western pressure and Western advocacy. Today, that's really, it's not happening. Uh, there's much more pragmatism. Money speaks louder now. Uh, what, what the West is after is money and resources and geopolitical uh, power. And religious freedom really has dropped off the radar. And, and because, because our elites have a Marxist leaning now, we're quite a long way down that long march through the institutions where most of our elites have a uh, are, um, have a Marxist bent. They're quite anti-Christian, a lot of them. And not only that, they're even when they say they are, you know, raising issues of religious freedom with with other regimes, they're doing that at the same time as they raise, you know, same-sex marriage and and abortion rights. And and you know, it just completely wipes their moral uh, high ground out from under them. No one's going to listen to them anymore. They're, you know, the West is increasingly regarded by the majority of the world as, as as morally degenerate. So, you know, their appeal, any appeals that are made for religious freedom, are just, you know, they should, 
know, they just shake their heads and everything gets thrown out. The baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. Somebody was showing me just a little earlier this morning the photo of two American military representatives who had turned up at a, I think it was some sort of a nuclear summit, and uh, they're transgender. And the comments that we were reflecting on around the office were along the lines of what you're suggesting. Uh, the West, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is, I mean, this is, we're talking about the American military, but yep. uh, the rest of the world is saying, this is the West, that includes us. And they're actually saying, we've become the laughing stock. So, as you say, when you lose that respect, you actually become. Uh, the brunt of a joke. You're a laughing stock, and that's what's happening to Western civilization. That's true, and I mean what the implications for that, of that on international religious freedom are absolutely phenomenal. Because, as I said, if 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 the West is no longer going to be able to uh, speak for religious freedom with with some sort of moral authority and the with the with the economic might to back it up, which it has had, then, then the, as I said, the gloves are off. Who's going to stop? Who's going to stop the Saudis executing apostates now? Who's going to stop, you know, what's happening in Pakistan now or even in a country like Ethiopia? Uh, who's going to stop? Uh, who's going to intervene to, in, in, the, in defense of persecuted Christians? Not the West, that's for sure. Um, uh, a few other countries are, but they haven't got the they haven't got the sort of influence and mil- military or economic uh, sort of oomph that the West had. So, like Hungary, for example, Hungary today, which is mocked and derided by the West because it won't promote, um, you know, like uh, you know LGBT rights and same-sex marriage and promote abortion and everything. It, it restricts those things. You're not allowed to groom children in Hungary. So it's mocked and derided by the West. But Hungary is today a world leader in its care for persecuted Christians. It has a whole department in its uh, parliament devoted to uh, what they call a human capacities. So that's pro-family, pro-life and pro-persecuted church and um, but the West, nah. So especially um, America has really gone into decline there. I'd say Australia is is useless in this regard, and um, who knows whether Britain is going to uh, recover any any of that sort of influence? I don't really think it can actually. Hungary's getting a good mention on today's 2020 because uh, just earlier we were talking about Viktor Orban. He's the Prime Minister of Hungary and uh, he's made a statement to their parliament. We shall protect our families. Uh, We will not let gender activists into our schools. And in Hungary, a father shall be a man and a mother a woman and our children shall be left alone. That's an incredible statement. And as you're saying right now, Elizabeth Kendall, Uh, One of the things that results uh, from the changes that are going on in the world is that Hungary is actually being considered a laughingstock by the West. Uh, But that's actually something we were applauding a little earlier today and something I suspect Christians will applaud when they see that sort of thing happening and wondering why this is not happening in Australia. Although one thing that was added a little earlier today was that Bill Shorten has made a comment around uh, mothers bearing children. I'm not exactly sure of all of that, just reflecting on what our earlier guest said. Uh, Elizabeth, 
Let's come back to the good story that we began to uh, talk about as I introduced our conversation today. The growth, especially of the Protestant church, we might say over the last 50 years or 100 years, uh, I've had conversations over the years where we've talked about the growth of the church on the African continent, uh, now numbering well over 500 million Christian believers. Uh, South American mm. continent, over 500 million Christian believers. China, now up over 100 million Christian believers. And places like Iran, uh, while they're not in those sorts of numbers, uh, considered the fastest growing church in the world. There's a good story on church growth. We might not be seeing it in Australia, but there's a good story to be told. Uh, yes, it's, it's a great story, and it's one of the great untold stories. Most Christians don't even know this. Most Christians just get like this the negative stuff that comes to them from the media, and I don't even know if they're really encouraged to towards hope even from their churches, and they should be because, you know, the gospel is powerful. Christ died. Uh, for, for this, you know, Christ died to change everything. The trajectory changed that day on the cross. And, um, you know, and, and the victory was won. We're basically just mopping up uh, uh, in this day. Now, the reason for the massive change in, over the last, like, 60, 70 years is because there's been a shift in the global mission force. So before around 1960, most missionaries were Westerners. They were Americans and Brits and Aussies and, and Irish, and, and they were white Western middle-class people going out from their churches into the mission field. But like then that had been going on for, you know, 150 years from the beginning of Protestant missions, so about uh, the beginning of the 1900s. But by the time you get to the 1960s, we start to see the churches that were planted by those Western missionaries have now gone through several generations and have matured to the point that they have now built Bible colleges and they are sending out missionaries of their own. So take India, for example. The first missionary sending organization in India that was sending Indian missionaries out onto the mission field was uh, established in Tamil Nadu, South India, in about 1960 or in the early 1960s. Today, India is the second largest missionary sending nation on the earth, mm. just after America. So South Korea actually sends more missionaries uh, internationally. Most Indian missionaries go within India, which is really a federation of nations. They're still ministering cross-culturally. But uh, while America, American churches still send out the most missionaries for any country, most missionaries are not Westerners today. They are Indians, they are South Koreans, they are Brazilians, they are Nigerians, uh, they are Pacific Islanders. They uh, and and a lot of these a lot of these missionaries have uh, a really strong sense of purpose as well. For example. Uh, the Nigerian missionary force is one of, is probably the most significant African missionary force, right? A lot of African churches are quite tribal and don't really care a lot about other tribes. But the Nigerian, Nigerian church is very missional. They are sending churches all across North Africa and into Europe 
and many actually believe in Nigeria that they have a divine obligation to take the gospel back to England from whence it came. They say, I've heard Ben, Archbishop Ben Kwashi say this. He said, the gospel came to us from England before the English came, often bringing their luggage in their coffins because they knew they'd die here in Africa. He said, we were savages. We were into occult worship. We killed each other. It was disgusting. And the, and the English people, English missionaries brought the gospel to, Ni- to, the, to the Nigerian people and, and transformed us and saved us. And we have a divine obligation to take the, English, to take the gospel back and to re-evangelize uh, the UK. There are Chinese who feel the same about uh, the Chinese divine mission to take the gospel back along the Silk Road from whence it came. So it traveled. It used to travel east on the Silk Road to China in the early years of the of the Christian Church. The Chinese believed that they had to take it back right across the Silk Road, evangelizing uh, Xinjiang and Central Asia and all the Muslim world before they get back to where the gospel came from. And uh, you know, this is really, I think, this is really significant, and it's it's a really big part if you believe in. If you believe in spiritual warfare, if you believe what the Bible says about our, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against, you know, the, the powers and authorities in spiritual realms, then you must see the connection between this missionary activity and the, and the uptick in persecution. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest, religious liberty analyst. We're talking about our changing world, and it's a good story, the growth of Protestant Christianity in particular. And uh, Elizabeth, let's not leave Catholics out of this. I imagine that there's actually growth in the Catholic Church as well. Are you are you familiar? Because we're talking about sort of a growth of Protestant Christianity because that's largely where that missional movement has been. But uh, the Catholic Church, any thoughts here? Uh, well, I don't have a lot of uh, figures on the Catholic Church. It's definitely true that the growth amongst Catholics and Orthodox is not the same or not barely even comparable with the growth in Protestant Christianity. So Catholic Mission was already very active, uh, particularly in in Asia, in Vietnam, uh, around Cambodia and other places. Uh, The Catholics were in China uh, very early um, and not as early as the Assyrians. But uh, they were uh, they had a different mentality. They they believed that you could that the thing to do was to target the rulers and hope for a top down uh, a top down um, impact you know, of mission. Whereas the Protestant missionary movement started in the late 1800s, you know, uh, with William Carey, who sort of founded this uh, a new movement to raise money and send out uh, Protestant missionaries to live amongst the people and not really to target the elites and, and the kings and everything, but really working at a grassroots level, uh, moving in amongst the people, and um, it's just, it just slowly took off. And, and it is slow. I think it was William Carey who famously said, I know how to plod, and that's what, that's what you do. It's the day-to-day life of living as a Christian 
uh, in amongst the people. We all want, you know, this great miracle revival that transforms the nation in five minutes, but it doesn't actually normally work that way. It's a plodding day-to-day grind of being a Christian openly uh, in the community. And, um, and that has really transformed the developing world. A plod, a day-to-day grind. And as we're talking about the changes that have been going on and the changes that are continuing and will continue, let's talk about the way people have moved from country areas into the cities over especially this last 50 or 70 years. Any thoughts here around the changes that have been going on that have been fueling this growth of Protestant Christianity and also uh, the thing that comes with that, uh, this level of persecution? Yes, there's a lot of things to think about here, actually, because um, urbanisation, has rapid urbanisation has been actually... Um, quite devastating for a lot of people and I've got material on my website on this topic and I also touch on it in the introduction of my uh, first book um, Turn Back the Battle it, it, it actually is it's catastrophic so in, in the developing world in the developed world rather so say in cities like London and Paris and New York these mega cities they develop slowly over the course of centuries And their institutions and their infrastructure developed along with the population growth. But in in the developing world, so cities like Karachi, for example, is the one that I use on my website as an example, um, these cities were actually quite small. They had a population of, you know, a couple of hundred thousand in, like, say, 1960, when the world population started to grow rapidly. And the population of the world started to grow because of improved sanitation and food production and medical uh, technology. And the population grew. And what happened was a lot of people moved into the cities looking for a better way of life. So what you get is cities growing really, really, really fast. So in a city like Karachi, in about 1960, it had about 400,000 uh, population. Today, it's got 21 million. It's like the population of Australia in one city. And about half of the population are migrants, mostly illegal migrants, uh, mostly Pashtun illegal migrants from Afghanistan. And, I mean, that population has grown so fast that the, there's no way the government could keep up with the infrastructure or the institutions to support that mass of humanity that's now all competing for space and jobs and power. And because of that, these cities become really dangerous. So you've got millions of people living in slums. You've got lawless areas. You've got the rise of criminality. You've got terrorist organisations actually ruling over whole parts of the city, flying their flag freely in the city. And, and these places are really dangerous places for Christians because Christians challenge not just the religious, uh, uh, you know, the monopoly that Islam has on, on religion there, but they also challenge the corruption, the killing, the, uh, the, the money laundering, the trafficking, the drug dealing, um, they lead drug dealers to Christ and take them out of the supply chain. They do all sorts of things that annoy everyone who's corrupt and criminal. 
and fundamentalist, uh, and uh, it's really, really dangerous. So the mega cities of the develop of the developing world have become extremely dangerous places for Christians. And it was in like the mega cities or the rapidly developing cities of the Middle East that we see revolution breaking out in the late 1970s, 1979 and into the 80s. That's where you see the revolution coming out of the slums often. And uh, likewise, in, in I was just, I've been writing on Syria this last week and one city that's greatly under threat uh, of a Turkish invasion now is Kamishli in northern Syria. And, and you know, you look at the, the statistics for Kamishli, um, it, used to, it was always an Assyrian city and always had a, a Christian majority until the rapid urbanisation saw multitudes of Kurds moving from the rural areas into the cities. And so, so that's changed the whole demographic. And, of course, that has an implication for the Christians uh, in Kamishli. But now they're, all, now they're all at risk of the Turks, so that's, that's another story. But <laughs> yeah, it's, made the, it's made the situation for Christians, uh, especially in the developing world, extremely dangerous. We might say, Elizabeth, uh, put your hand up now if you'd like to go and live in Karachi <laughs> with 21 million people in the way that you have described the danger of being there in Karachi and especially dangerous for Christians. Now, my suspicion is that the Christian church in Karachi and throughout Pakistan has continued to grow. And as they've continued to grow, all of these threats are working against them. Is this the sort of way that persecution, as we're hearing about it, is happening? Because the tremendous growth and the very fact that there is uh, the two don't mix so easily, uh, Christianity with the ethics and the way these other religious movements work, there becomes a opportunity for conflict and a clash. Well, that's exactly right. You've got, I mean, the problems of pouring masses of people from all different quarters into, into a confined space where they have to compete for everything. Um, and that's it's just obvious how catastrophic that's going to be. I mean, regarding Karachi, it's not only that they have about 20 million people, there's an estimated 40 million guns in the city. I mean, if you just think every, just about every Pashtun refugee who comes over the border from Afghanistan and heads down to Karachi is probably wearing an AK-47 when they come. And then there's illegal guns everywhere. So, And, and they're competing for like hegemony over their own patch. So, yes, it's, um, it's incredibly dangerous. But, you know, Pakistan, I, I regard the church in Pakistan as the most uh, imperiled uh, and, you know, at-risk church in the world today, uh, if not the most imperiled, then one of. People are worried about the church in Afghanistan, and uh, rightly so, but that has always been an underground church, always. It's never known anything different. And it is absolutely adept at functioning as an underground church. The church in Pakistan has never been an underground church. It's part of the British Empire. It built cathedrals and churches on Main Street. And the Christians lived together in little gathered colonies where they actually could be wiped out in a, in a flash. Elizabeth, uh, I'm going to have to cut in. extremely vulnerable. Because yep. we're about to go to news. 
Elizabeth, let's continue to talk a little about uh, Karachi because we started to really unpack some amazing insight around how all of this works that we're talking about today, a little bit like a case study of what's going on in Karachi, the capital of Pakistan, an unbelievable example, in fact, of just how Christians have become vulnerable. Karachi is a pretty special place to be talking about. Well, yeah, Karachi is actually the capital of Sindh province, the southeastern province of Pakistan. But I'd really like to drive north for a little while and look and talk about Lahore. Lahore is the capital of Punjab province, which is a real hotbed of Islamic radicalisation. It's uh, full of Islamic madrasas. It's uh, where if you if you hear about blasphemy cases and uh, burnings of whole Christian colonies on, on accusations of blasphemy. It's usually taking place in Punjab and usually taking place in Lahore. So Lahore is a very difficult uh, place. It's, it's just east of, um, of Islamabad, and uh, it's been a hotbed of Islamic radicalization for a long, long time. But let me tell you a really amazing story out of Lahore. About six years ago, I met a man by the name of Kaiser Julius. He would have been in his late 30s. He might be 40. Uh, he came out to Melbourne School of Theology here with his wife and children to do his PhD. And he comes from Lahore. And he founded uh, the Open Theological Seminary in Lahore. And they offer... Um, uh, TEE, which is Theological Education by Extension. So they do have, I don't know if they have any students uh, on site, but all their staff are on site. And most of their students study theological uh, studies by, by extension. And their aim is to, is to build up the church with knowledge and grace to transform the nation and to, to be able to witness to, in the nation. This is in a country where, where if you witness, you could end up dead. You know, or you could end up charged with blasphemy, which is almost worse than ending up dead because it means you're going to rot in jail for a long, long time. But he came out, he'd established this college, and he came out to get his PhD. And he did his PhD uh, studying the history of the blasphemy law in Pakistan. Can you imagine, I wonder if you can even guess how many students the Open Theological Seminary has on its books for 2022. Would you like to have a guess, <laughs> Neil? You, you better let us in. I'm not sure. How many? How, well, I tell you what, they have on their books for 2022 in Lahore 6,500 students, wow. of which 54% are women. Wow. And these are people who are training to be able to share their faith with their Muslim neighbours in a country where it could see them killed or, or, or imprisoned for blasphemy. You know, we have to... This is why this is like, um, This is the front line of the spiritual battle. And we just have to get behind these people. We have to support their ministries. We have to pray for their ministries. We have to pray for the persecuted church because they literally are on the front line of, of, of a spiritual battle for Pakistan. And um, I think that, I mean, I just think that's amazing. I, I, I almost find it 
mind-boggling. <laughs> well, <laughs> when I when reality. I mentioned misunderstood stories, this is one of those, isn't it? That you are so Absolutely. beautifully articulating today, Elizabeth Kendall, and listeners to this program will know that we often are talking to mission organisations or organisations that support the persecuted church, that we'll often talk to you, Elizabeth Kendall, around the work that you do in just getting this word out, that we're so insular in our little setting here in Australia that somehow or other we're missing what's really going on in the big wide world and uh, you're letting us in on some things today which motivate us as you say not only to pray but to support those initiatives that are actually uh, getting those people like you know more than 6,000 students in that bible school ready to go on to missionary endeavor I mean it's just Mm -hmm. mind-boggling to see the numbers like that Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I, I keep trying to remind people of all the time is, is one of the reasons why Christians in the developing world are so severely persecuted is that they are countercultural, they, whether, um, whether they like it or not. That's just the way it is. They, they are Christians in a Muslim environment. So it's like thinking about Pakistan now. And if you're, in, uh, if you're in India, then they're Christians in a Hindu environment. If you're in Laos, you're Christians in an animist you know, environment. And, and it's, so what you do when, when you become a Christian is you put your faith in Jesus and you make a conscious decision to change direction. And, and, you know, I, I spoke actually to a church about this just last weekend, uh, and I rooted it in Hebrews 13, 13, and that the challenge of Hebrews 13, 13, that we are called to follow Christ outside the camp where Christ was crucified outside the city gates and to bear the shame that he bore. And that the gates are not, it's not just about being like, driven out of your community physically, driven out of the village or expelled from the, from, from the camp. It's about leaving the mainstream, stepping outside of the mainstream. And if you think of the mainstream like a river and everyone's going in the same direction, it's all very easy and you can float along. And that's what we've been able to do in the West as Christians for a long time. Because the, the culture is, has been a Judeo-Christian culture and we've sat comfortably within the mainstream of culture. We're all sort of flowing in the, in the same direction. But if, if you're in a Muslim culture and you decide to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, then you're going against the flow. And you're go- that's going to be extremely difficult. And the thing is for us now as Australians, we have to realize that the culture is changing here. Uh, our culture is changing where the, the society is, at this point in time, putting away its Christian religion and it wants to be, I think, progressive, secular, humanist, atheist. And, you know, we know this. We know what an atheistic culture looks like and it is not pretty. And we are heading to the day when Christians are going to be and they increasingly are already counter-cultural, going in a different direction to the government, to their elites and to their neighbours. And we're going to start to know what it feels like to be going against the flow. And will we do, as Hebrews 13, 13 com- uh, uh, challenges us to do, to follow Christ outside the camp and bear the shame that he bore? 
you reflect these things beautifully and uh, some will know that this is the sort of thing that I've reflected on in my new book uh, called Mm. Public Christians in a Secular Age. And as we're getting a little bit of a focus now on ourselves in Australia, Elizabeth, while we're talking about radicalised majorities, if they were Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or animist, uh, in amongst that is the atheist majority and when we talk secularism we're talking about a movement towards a Mm -hmm. atheist style uh movement that uh, that that uh, basically uh characterizes a nation so secularism does that it takes us out of an understanding of the transcendent god somehow or other you've got to be able to be aware of that and bring uh, those wonderful uh, those wonderful things about our faith to the fore and not be ashamed of those. Absolutely. And I think that, that I love that not ashamed idea. I will not be ashamed of the gospel. I will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And why would we be? I mean, his truth is a blessing for the world. Uh, he is the creator of heaven and earth. He, he wrote the manual. He knows how it works. And um, you know we think we can't we can't ignore God's laws. He set this world in motion. He knows how it works. He made the law of the laws of science, right? So I can't walk off my roof and say, "Well, oh, stuff the law of gravity. I don't care about the law of gravity. I'm going to walk through the sky." If I do that, I'm going to fall to the ground and break my leg. And the same thing happens when we say. You know, I'm not going to obey the moral law, God's moral law. If I was to say, well, you know, I'd like to have an affair with my neighbor's husband and, you know, stuff God's moral law, you know, well, I'll go out and do it. And guess what? People are going to get hurt. I'm going to get hurt. My soul will be destroyed. That family will be hurt. The wife will be destroyed. The children will be shattered. And it just brings pain and grief and and chaos into God's beautiful creation. And, you know, Christians don't need to be ashamed of God's laws. They don't need to be ashamed of Jesus. Nothing, you know, people people say, oh, look, we should just love, treat others as we want them to treat, you know, to, to treat us, blah, blah, blah. And they don't even realize that they're quoting Jesus. We have nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, in our in our faith and our gospel, and at this point in our lives, the worst that can happen to us is that you know a neighbour has a laugh at us. Um, you know, I and I don't even think that we should be uh, fearful of worse. There, there is worse happening in the world today, and uh, Pete, the courage. I mean, I just think of the courage of those Pakistani missionaries uh, going out in Lahore with the gospel. Uh, you know, and yet Christians in Australia have been for a long time uh, too shy to even t- to say, "Look, I was at church on Sunday. That's what I did, and it was great." <laughs> we have to change our attitudes. Our eyes have to sparkle. And I love that's one of my favourite elements of your book is talking about the uh, the re uh, uh, not enlightenment, the transcendence, bringing back the transcendence. Yep. Yep. And the wonder and, and the and the glory of um, you, know, you know your eyes light up, don't they? When you see God, when you see all of creation through God's eyes, it's just it's something wonderful, and we shouldn't be holding it back nearly as much as we are. Well, the way I describe it, and uh, the thought of a magical world, yes. uh, the sorts of 
world where, you know, you can talk about a fairy tale. Of course, uh, when we talk about God and we talk about the scriptures and uh, his purposes, these are not fairy tale. These are real. But uh, when we understand uh, the sort of things, uh, and I described it just recently, like a a flat balloon. When a balloon loses all of its air, it just is a shriveled up flat balloon. But when you are actually exposed to the transcendence and the wonder and the magnificence and the miracle working power of God, the balloon is Mm. inflated. So we're not just in two dimensions, we're in three. So yes, not being ashamed of the fact that we're the ones who are living in the three dimensional world and not just the flat a shriveled uh, balloon with no air that the secular world wants us to live in. And uh, there's ways that we can certainly turn that around. Hey, this sounds like a nice little Christian reflection. And uh, for listeners, just to hear what you're reflecting, Elizabeth, and uh, I'm sitting here in awe listening to what you are saying the ramifications are if you don't take that responsibility to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God under salvation. This is the message that we're called to carry. And yes, there are some things that we're going to be called to be countercultural. This is such a powerful thing. And I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask you, Elizabeth, uh, you talk about convergence, the fact that we were talking about the rapid population growth around the world, uh, the urbanization, the movement of people from the country to the cities, uh, and mass migrations and the way that they affect the way Christians are treated uh, in the world. This convergence idea, this brings these things all together so that we can understand the sort of world we're living in. That's right. I've seen it described actually without the without even considering the religious element. I've seen it described as a perfect storm. So all uh, uh, this particular strategic analyst that I have such high esteem for, Greg Copley, who happens to be an Australian, the principal of the International Strategic Studies Association, he describes it as a perfect storm. So the the rapid urbanisation, the rapid population growth, the mass migration of peoples across ethnic fault lines, across religious fault lines. Uh, He calls it as, and then the economic uh, problems that have all arisen as well. He says that meant that we came into the 21st century in a perfect storm. And, you know, and in, in, the, in the introduction to um, my first book, um, Turn Back the Battle, I take all that and I add into it, and it's on my website as well, in the Global Trends section of my website, I add to it the religious trends. So we already have this incredibly turbulent environment, uh, a perfect storm, Copley describes it as, in the 21st century. But you add to that, the rise of religious nationalism, like Hindu nationalism and Buddhist nationalism, uh, the rise of, of fundamentalist Islam after the 1979 revolutions uh, that has seen uh, Islamic jihad and Islamic fundamentalism and radicalization spread everywhere. And then, of course, the phenomenal growth of Christianity, which means that Christians are increasing in numbers right in the middle of all this growth of radicalization and danger and everything. Uh, we, it all comes together today. And what this means is that we need to be praying to the persecuted church more than ever. And uh, as you know, I'm still putting out the weekly religious liberty prayer bulletin. 
But I've, I've added to that, I've also started a, um, an Instagram account that I'm thinking especially of young people and uh, maybe people who only have a, like a cursory interest in persecuted church issues. You know, they've got other interests. They're, they've got other things to do, but they'd like a bite-sized bit to keep them informed, uh, a, a, an image-driven bite-sized bit. So I've started Religious Liberty Prayer on Instagram just to try to, to really trying to reach youths too, to um, to get youths interested and to get them informed about what's happening with the church in the world. And we need to be praying for the church uh, like never before. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And I truly believe that if the church would do that, if the church would really take serious, the serious business of intercessory prayer, it would change the world. I believe God wants to work through the answering of our prayers. I'm going to tell you Elizabeth Kendall's website once again in just a few moments, and we're going to confirm how to spell Elizabeth Kendall. Just uh, bear with us just a few moments. <laughs> We've got time to take one call in here. Solomon is in northwest Sydney. Solomon, hello, welcome along. Yeah, good day, Neil. Uh, good morning, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you for the uh, uh, great uh, reflections. Uh, we did uh, one uh, occasion in 2018, uh, just the three of us. It was like we were in just one room, but uh, people were listening, of course. Um, yes. We talked about uh, the Japanese uh, Christians, uh, uh, perhaps uh, intrusion of missionaries to North Korea uh, and, uh, you know, and South Korean uh, in, in influence uh, in the missionary endeavours to North Korea as well as Chinese. Do you have any, uh, being our immediate neighbours, do you have any updates of any movement across that way? Elizabeth, uh, I don't. I don't have a lot of. Uh, I don't have much in the way of updates. I know that there is a uh, strong missionary movement in South Korea that is very, very concerned about their flesh and blood brothers and sisters on the north side of the border. And many of, the, of those Korean missionaries have actually moved to, uh, to the Chinese side of the North Korean border and are working there to collect uh, North Koreans as they escape across the Yalu River and to engage with North Koreans who are involved in trade uh, over the river as well and to and to uh, just to engage with them. They run coffee shops and all sorts of things up there on the Chinese side of the border and safe houses and everything. The big problem in the last couple of years has been uh, COVID and that the North Korean regime, in order to try and keep COVID out, because there was no way they would, could control it otherwise, they can't even keep the electricity on in the hospitals in Pyongyang for more than a few hours. So how are they going to deal with it with a huge outbreak of COVID? So they just shut the borders. And the tragic thing is that there's been virtually no movement. Um, and one, one ministry that I feel very strongly about, um, now I can't remember the name, name of it, but it's uh, the, the missionary's name is Linton. I think it's Stephen Linton. Um, it's, a, it's, a mission, it's a mission that, it can, that is a, an American a North Korean and a South Korean working to help North Koreans with drug-resistant tuberculosis. And I think it was, a, a, there's a, oh, I don't know, it's an ABC documentary on, the, on, the, on it. It's called Out of Breath. And if you can look for that, Out of Breath, 
you'll get to see this most amazing Christian mission mission in North Korea, and they were they were treating people with drug resistant tuberculosis, and it's a Christian mission working with North Korean doctors and North Korean uh, nurses, and you know. I'm just so conscious that all that ended the minute the borders were shut because of COVID. Um, and I just can only imagine that everyone they were helping there is, is dead. You know, like the consequences uh, have, would have been absolutely horrendous for, for mission, for, for the underground church in China, it would, in uh, North Korea. The whole shutdown would have been absolutely horrendous. So uh, we need to can really uphold North Korean believers in our prayers. Solomon, thank you so much for your call and our time has run out and uh, wanting to especially connect you today to be able to subscribe to Elizabeth's Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and you can visit Elizabeth's website and I've got to say it is jam-packed with the most outstanding insights and up-to-date information about what's happening with Christian persecution around the world. We've only just scratched the surface in a conversation like this today. Here's how you go to Elizabeth Kendall's website. It's elizabethkendall.com. Now, how do you spell that? E-L-I-Z. So it's not Elizabeth with an S. It's E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H. Kendall with one L. K-E-N-D-A-L. Elizabeth kendall.com and you might like to check out that instagram account and as elizabeth says for younger people bite-sized bits to keep you informed about the developments that are going on in the world where the christian church is being persecuted perhaps you've never heard a conversation like this one you've heard today you'll be able to hear it again on a podcast later on this afternoon you'll be able to share it with friends and get people understanding what's happening around the world so far as christians and their vulnerabilities as this world is changing elizabeth kendall Com. Elizabeth mentioned a couple of books too. Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today. And After Saturday Comes Sunday. Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. ElizabethKendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your time and your heart with us today on 2020. And thanks for having me, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.